0: listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and Will the Thrill. Can you dig that, baby?
1: <laughs> hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me this week is Mr. Will. Hello, How are you
2: doing? (laughs) Doing okay, considering the nature of things and the nature of this topic. This is going to be a rough
1: one. Yeah. Yes, it is. And I'm going to remain partially silent for the majority of this episode, uh, because if not, I will just start screaming expletives, and I'm pretty sure our network will not appreciate that, nor will our families with uh, little ones that are riding in the car. So, um. I'm going to let you take the reins and uh, enjoy.
2: Yes, so we're going to tackle a very controversial and yet relevant topic today, and that is the subject of segregation, mostly in how it related to the music industry. Now, before we go on, I think it's important to note we're going to be covering some very dark topics. These are points in American history that are certainly not our finest. These are things that I think many people will find, if not... Upsetting, downright abhorrent. So
1: this is a trigger warning for you guys. I, I'm assuming because my husband is the way he is, you probably didn't throw in a lot of expletives. It's just the subject
2: matter, correct? Correct. This isn't about curse words or anything. This is about the subject matter of segregation and the rules that were in place, specifically the Jim Crow regulations, which are going to be very tough to review.
1: Okay, so you guys have... that. that is a trigger warning for you guys, so... Just take that into consideration, okay?
2: Okay. So, I, for one, was shocked when I started researching this because the goal was to talk about segregation in rock and roll music. And there's a lot of stories surrounding that. However, I had no idea the depth of what was called the Jim Crow era. So, did you know when the Jim Crow era started? It, like the 1800s, correct? This That is correct. It was really post-Civil War and spans really... The era itself is deemed to close about 100 years later. But as we're going to review, these are topics that are still very, very relevant today. And we're going to also look at the civil rights struggle that sort of came out of this. So... For a little background, the Jim Crow laws actually came out of the post-Civil War era, and they were specifically designed for no other purpose than to marginalize African-Americans. For example, it did things like prevented African-Americans from getting the right to vote, hold jobs, own property, or get an education, and the the penalties were severe. Anything from fines to jail up until death. And there was really no other purpose of these laws. And it really began in 1865 in response to the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Now, the 13th Amendment, at least the ratification of said amendment, abolished slavery in the U.S. And in response, the Jim Crow laws came about, as did what was known as the Black Codes, which were a series of laws, which, again, targeted specifically. African-Americans within the community. They were strict state and local laws where formally enslaved people, it, it essentially governed how people who were slaves, now liberated by the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, were essentially kept in check by these laws. It was a way to keep them in what was essentially indentured servitude. It prevented them from having the right to vote, as I mentioned earlier. It controlled where they could live, where they could Work and how they could conduct themselves in public. And really, the legal system was stacked against the African American population. At this point, these were things, these laws were backed by not only state and police workers, but also judges. And many of them were former Confederate soldiers who were upholding these cases and were going against the black defendants. So, this was about as deep entrenched in this just, oh, it's, it's again, abhorrent is the only word I can come up with. And these were often held in conjunction with labor camps, where labor camps people were sent in and treated as slaves. Many of the black offenders would usually receive sentences that were longer than their white counterparts, and some of them didn't even live to make it out of these camps. So you had segregation, you had laws designed to specifically suppress a demographic, and they were throwing people in labor camps. Yeah, I, I
1: I'm, I, my blood's boiling already, and you're not even done with the first page. Oh no,
2: I haven't even gotten out of that. And the fact that the Jim Crow era and the black codes gave rise to the KKK. It was actually under the administration of President Andrew Johnson, who immediately succeeded President Lincoln after he was assassinated, and he was full of contradictions. For example, Johnson was a Southern senator yet he was a union loyalist. And at the same time, he supported black codes. So see if you can figure that one out. And a little bit of history, Andrew Johnson was one of only three U.S. presidents to be impeached. So shiny nickel, if anyone can name the other two. Clinton. That's one. Nixon was out before he was impeached. Nixon resigned, correct. Trump just got impeached. He is number three. Yep, it was Johnson, Clinton, Trump, because Ooh. again, well done. Nixon resigned before the impeachment proceedings could go on. So, Johnson blatantly stood in the way of African American progress in the United States. And at this point in history, again, just after the Civil War, violence was certainly on the rise, targeting African American families. Schools were destroyed. Bands of people were rounded up. There were many times individuals who were attacked, tortured, and even killed. And there were lynchings, and black people were thrown in prison without cause, and many of them were actually forced out of the South altogether. And this was all just on the heels of the Civil War. The KKK was founded in 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee. It was originally a private club for former Confederate veterans. Although it was officially dissolved in 1869, it just really went underground. And unfortunately, the KKK continued its activities up until the present day, where it manipulated government officials and local politics to, again, suppress people of African-American descent. Hate never
1: goes away. It, it just changes form. Of course we still have the KKK today. It's because we still have people that are ignorant enough to be in the KKK.
2: Yeah, and it's basically an underground society. It was accepted up until about 1869. And this was, again, just the end of the 1800s. By 1880, many of these Jim Crow laws expanded out of the South and into other parts of the United States. And this led to a large number of black families moving. They just got out of wherever they were. And this actually sparked a movement that's going to come up in the earlier part of the 20th century, which I'll get to shortly. The Jim Crow laws included segregating all manners of day-to-day life, which included waiting rooms in the bus stations... Restrooms, water fountains, building entrances and elevators, cemeteries, and even cashier windows for places like amusement parks and theaters. There were separate windows set aside for people that were white and people that were black. And you're going to start to see in the late 1880s, the beginning of, do you remember the topic of redlining? No, this actually came up recently during the uh, protests during the recent protests uh, for George Floyd. And they mentioned redlining and it actually, the roots go back to 1880. Where specific laws were put in place where African Americans couldn't live in white neighborhoods and segregation was widely enforced. Some states even required separate textbooks for black and white students. Many of them had separate classrooms. And to use the modern term, New Orleans mandated the segregation of sex workers according to race. Jesus, are you serious? Mm Mm-hmm. In Atlanta, African-Americans, if they went to court, were actually given a different Bible to swear upon. They had a segregated Bible, which is just the height of hypocrisy. Gee. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. And it was not uncommon in, in to go through towns, specifically in the South and Southeastern United States, where the signs would blatantly advertise the fact that African-Americans were not welcome. As we move into the 20th century, these laws, unfortunately, didn't start to wane. In fact, they got even worse. At the start of the 20th century, just after World War I, the NAACP noted that there was a rise in violent behavior against black individuals. So they sent an investigator, and his name was Walter White, into these southern communities to figure out what was going on. And little known fact, Walter White was really the first black Klansman. If you saw the film, such a good movie, by the way. It's phenomenal. So, Walter White was actually an African American investigator who had a fair complexion and he infiltrated white supremacist groups. (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. Just after the, actually, in the midst of the First World War around 1916, African Americans be able to move en masse out of the South because they felt they were no longer welcome. And over 6 million African Americans moved to places like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. And this is what we saw, remember the other night, we were watching that piece. The, on oh, the art, the yep. migration. The migration piece. That is a series of paintings by artist Jacob Lawrence. There is
1: a terrific YouTube channel called The Art Assignment, which we found through uh, one of our favorite authors and YouTube personalities, John Green. Uh, he started working with this, and this is in hand in hand with the pbs and it's an excellent series there's probably about 250 different videos just on art and this was a uh, one specific piece on art and migration and they focused on this one artist and his artwork is moving it's beautiful he did 60 it was almost s- 70 tiles right yeah and there is a cohesiveness with all the colors. He did it at the same time, but they're all different paintings.
2: And if you want to see them, they are on display at the MoMA in New York. That is awesome. Yeah, so you can go see the work of Jacob Lawrence.
1: Well, yeah, if it's When open. it's open.
2: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, with things the way they are, I'm not sure if it'll be open. But when it opens back up, that is something you can go view. So while all this was going on, again, this is in the midst of World War I. Unfortunately, violence was on the rise. So race riots were very common. So were lynchings and mob violence. And this really continued, unfortunately, up until about 1919. And it's a time when many people referred to that summer of 1919 as the Red Summer, where in retaliation, white authorities actually charged black communities. This is outrageous. With conspiring to conquer white America. Ah. That was the charge handed down by many local courts. Just, just insane. Now, while all this was going on, education was under attack, and there were very few places where a young black individual could get an education. Uh, that's why a lot of folks were leaving the South and heading into these major cities. And this actually brought about a publication. It was an underground newspaper called the Chicago Defender, which encouraged black Americans to not only move, but gave them tips on how to do it safely. And it was read by millions of black Americans in the South. And in fact, when the white communities got word of it, they actually threatened to kill anyone caught reading the paper. I know it's it's just it's maddening. It's utterly maddening. Uh, doesn't that
1: even violate the First Amendment? I think it violates a lot,
2: not not the least of which like, is the First Amendment.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 just saying, like
2: Jesus. And really, everything only got worse. It was one of those situations where it felt like, well, how can it get any worse? Well, we went from World War One into the Great Depression, which made things sort of reach a boiling point between you know. Uh, with the racial divide that was so prevalent and this was actually the case even though in world war ii many black americans risked their lives and fought for the united states when they returned home they were met with segregation violence and non-opportunity jumping back to the 1800s this was the sort of the start of the movement of taking these jim crow laws out of the south and into the north so As we mentioned, we had a lot of black families fleeing the South only to find out that they'd be segregated in the North. That's because wonderful just jerks like Ohio segregationist Alan Granberry Thurman, he was in 1867 running for governor, stood on the platform of barring black citizens the right to vote, period. Now, he lost that election. However, he did later gain a seat in the U.S. Senate where he continued these efforts. After the Civil War, and this was picked up by various senators and congresspeople, again, well into the start of the 20th century, the First World War, and really up until the point where World War II was winding down. And at the point where most of America was settling back after World War II, African Americans were, again, told they were not welcome. And this is where the concept of redlining came into play, where developments outlined some very strict laws that did not allow black families into their neighborhood. And they would do it not so overtly. Some cases they were very outright with it, but in other cases they made it harder to say, get a mortgage, or suddenly homes that were on the market were not available. It was all very suspicious, and the entire goal was to prevent black families from settling these neighborhoods. After the Second World War, Prime Minister of Britain Winston Churchill said, America at this moment stands at the summit of the world. At this point, the United States, at least for many, appeared to be full of opportunity, economic advancement. People were buying houses. This was the start of the baby boom. And yet, this was a point where segregation was just as bad as it was in the late 1800s. Progress was hardly prevalent. Whew. I just need to take a moment with that because that's, you know, let me do the math here. 40, 50, 60, almost 70 years of just, just horrible, horrible behavior. It's still happening. And that's that's the worst part it's is. It's
1: still going on
2: now. It hasn't changed. I think, fortunately, we're about to see a turn. And this is where music became such a big component in the movement against segregation and against racial bias and united people. And it really started in the late 40s and just went raging into the 50s and 60s, which are considered the core of the civil rights movement. Uh, Many people know the famous story about Frank Sinatra, correct? I do. Well, it was a story that in the late 40s, Sinatra actually refused to play a venue in Las Vegas because they wouldn't rent a room to Sammy Davis Jr. Well, it goes back even before that. Uh, during the late 40s, Frank was appearing in numerous theaters in New York. His career was just getting started. And he went up to Harlem to see the Will Menston Trio. Huh. And he saw Sammy perform and was utterly floored. So he goes backstage to tell Sammy, you've done a great job. I'd love to see you again. So Sammy basically gives him A tour schedule, for lack of a better term. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here. And Frank says, oh, great. So he goes to these places, and Sammy's not there. So finally he goes back to this theater, and once again, Sammy's not performing, and Frank says, I'm angry. You know, I came all the way out here to see you. What's going on? And Sammy turns to him and says, Frank, they wouldn't let me in. I mean,
1: okay, number one, why book if you're not going to let him in? Yeah. And I know that there were there were performers, and I'm pretty sure you probably touch on this, but if not, I'll just mention it now, mm. that there would be, you know, people like Sammy Davis Jr. or uh, Nina Simone that would perform, and then as soon as they were done performing, they would be escorted out the back because they weren't allowed to be in the club.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm going to get to that you know, when we get to the 50s. There's a band called the Flamingos who run into a very similar kind of treatment. Got it. Uh, so what does Frank do in response? Frank actually storms back to the theater, holds up his contract because he's supposed to play there and tears it to shreds and storms out of the theater. Go Frank. Yeah. So, and this obviously continued as Sammy and Frank were working together. You know, there was the incident in Las Vegas. Uh, Sinatra was actually selected at the Will Maston with the Will Maston trio to open at the Capitol theater. And, uh, you know, he was, Sammy was denied entrance to the Copacabana, and Frank made sure he got in. So this continued throughout their report together. Now, the one takeaway from this that I don't like is the idea that Frank was fighting Sammy's battles for him. So I'm going to get to something in a minute that shows you how Sammy was extremely active in the civil rights movement. And really, he was a force to be reckoned with. So I'm going to be getting to that very shortly, because we're just on the cusp of the Civil Rights Movement, which really kicked off in the 1950s. So as we mentioned, African Americans have been fighting now inequality and injustice since really late 1860s. By 1950, there is a bit of a turning point here. And this is where the Civil Rights Movement really gets underway, and the struggle against segregation, against racism, is becoming more a part of American life. I think one of the landmark moments here was in 1954 in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of that case, this was a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court that ruled against separate educational facilities for black children and white children, declaring that it was inherently unequal. Now, this is not only done by the Supreme Court, the highest court in the country. This was the first law that really went against these Jim Crow and black codes. So we're seeing now again from 1860 to 1950, very little progress. Now the courts are stepping in and now we're starting to see things turning around. There was obviously resistance to the Brown ruling. Many people actually took their children out of public school and enrolled them in all white quote segregation academies. Uh, There was the use of violence and intimidation to prevent black individuals from then going to school In 1956, more than 100 congressmen signed a Southern Manifesto declaring that they would do everything they could to defend segregation. And that was in 1956, when just one year earlier was the famous Rosa Parks incident, where in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat. This obviously, yep, I know, good for her. This led to a 13-month boycott of the city's bus system, and this is the best part. It ended finally because the bus companies stopped se- segregating its African Americans. Right. They they had to, so they got them by the wallet, which is what it took. Why open. is she not on a coin? I know. It's it's insane. And this was also the first step in sort of the non-violent civil rights movement, which we are going to get in depth with. But this is again a podcast called rock and roll heaven so where are we if we don't talk about rock and roll how it came to be in a really weird spot (laughs) because i have to explain the network while we've gone rogue (laughs) so rock really started in the mid-1950s and as we go through this i think you'll see it was a unifying force in the fight against segregation because up until this point a lot of music was quote separated in the sense that you had you know jazz and R and b and you had styles that were sort of you know slanted towards one race or another. Rock and roll was really a mishmash of a bunch of these styles. Rock and roll was described as a merger of country music and rhythm and blues, but there's obviously much more to it than that. The seeds of what became rock and roll were really mixing out of, the black movement in music at that time, and how black vocal groups like the Dominoes and the Spaniels were taking gospel-style harmonies and sort of mixing it with that more aggressive rhythm and blues style. So this was really forming something brand new. Now, of course, disc jockey Alan Freed, he was in Cleveland, was credited with coining the term, but this is not entirely true. Many others referred to it as, quote, rock and roll, such as Dewey Phillips, he was in Memphis, and of course, Williams Hoss Allen, a nickname I love, who was at that time a DJ in Nashville, who created the first rock and roll radio stations by playing this type of music. And this kicked off something very interesting, because you had a mix of people now listening to what started as a black musical movement. And it was really geared towards the the youth of the day. So... For the first time in a long time, music was being steered in the direction of America's young people, which I think is the first step to unification, because once these young people start to grow up, as you'll see through the 50s and the 60s, they do start to take action, and we're going to get to that very shortly. This culminated in, of course, a very controversial subject, and that is one of Elvis Presley.
1: I love him, but he stole music.
2: Yeah, he he stole music, first of all, and many actually believe before seeing him perform he was a black musician yeah, yeah. and then there oh, was
1: yeah we're see we haven't even done an episode on Elvis don't worry we're getting there but you know he even dyed his hair he was a blonde and he went to black hair right yeah mm-hmm. he was a total fraud.
2: Yeah. I have no heroes. So you had this charismatic, handsome white singer singing black music. And, of course, the other piece of this was he was on national television gyrating and sending all the the pearl clutchers. Is that a good term now? Yes. Yeah. Into a tizzy.
1: It's like Rick Astley.
2: (laughs) Yes. It's kind of like Rick Astley. Um, Elvis Presley was obviously a big figure in 1950s music but so were players like Sam Cooke I know we've talked about him before we have an episode on that he's like the patron
1: saint of rock and roll heaven oh yeah
2: and and he's going to come up yet again Fats Domino, Buddy Holly Jerry Lee Lewis and even Johnny Cash they were in that vein known as Rockabilly so you had kind of that country rock sort of merger there Uh, groups like the Platters the Drifters, the Flamingos these were all big bands also who were playing in the 50s And they were all really marketing their music towards American youth, which made it very unique. As I mentioned earlier, rock sort of became a unifying force for a number of reasons. And we're going to start with Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry was actually a bit controversial when he came out. His lyrics were a little risque. Uh, The way he moved around the stage was a little questionable. I know there are alleged other stories. I'm not here to explore those. I'm here to discuss.
1: We will cover those on an episode for Chuck Berry. Don't worry.
2: That's something altogether. But Chuck Berry was extremely popular. And it got to the point where the audiences for the clubs, which were originally segregated, had to be mixed. The clubs couldn't do that anymore. So it got to the point where people who wanted to see Chuck Berry we're going into a non-segregated arena because the performer and his gravitas demanded it, which is interesting. Good. Yeah. That's I mean, the thing.
1: If you have the power to do something like that, use it. If you have the power to inflict change upon something, use it. Do it.
2: Right. And, and they were sort of forced to because, again, Chuck Perry was a huge talent at that point. And I mentioned the band The Flamingos. They're known for their hit I Only Have Eyes For You. You know that one? Such a good song. Oh, yeah. Actually,
1: can we uh, can we listen to that? Hang on. Sure, it's up.
2: We're just going to listen to it for,
1: for a second.
3: My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. Sure,
1: just thought we needed a little break from everything just have a little bit of music
2: yeah no i think that's good because uh, what happened to the flamingos in the 1950s was not so great uh they arrived for a show in birmingham alabama and the moment they got on the bus there were rows of armed police officers waiting to greet them they escorted them around the back and into a private dressing room where they gave them the following instructions they as black performers we only to make eye contact with black fans. Okay, two things.
1: Number one, pardon me for saying this, but what the actual fuck? Yeah. And
2: number two, how do you police that? Well, the thought behind it was separate the audiences. The white patrons were given the floor and the black patrons were in the balcony. <sighs> yeah, so... Again, just again, the only way I can describe it is abhorrent. It's the only thing I can think of. Uh, the end of the 50s actually marked the day the music died. That's the unfortunate incident, which I know we've covered, where uh, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and J.P. Richardson died in a plane crash. Uh, that was in the late 50s. That same year, jazz musician Charles Mingus released his song Mingus Ah Um. Now, this song was in response to an incident that took place two years prior where the governor of Arkansas sent the National Guard to a high school to prevent integration. So he actually deployed troops to this school to make sure segregation was still going on. Is he
1: the same one that said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow?
2: I don't know if he was attributed with that quote. Okay. What I do know is that Charles Mingus wrote a song in response to it that Columbia Records found so controversial, they made him release it as an instrumental they took the lyrics out. Seriously? Yeah, the lyrics called out not only the governor, who was a Winthrop Rockefeller, but also Eisenhower. And the terms being sick and ridiculous were bantered in the lyrics, as well as brainwashing and teaching to hate. Needless to say, the instrumental track was released, and the lyrics went by the wayside. But Mingus retitled and released the song as Original Faubus Fables. On the aptly named Candide label the following year. So it eventually was released, and it again satirized the behavior of the governor and the president at that time in response to that incident in 1957. Now we move into the 60s, into the heart of the civil rights movement, and perhaps what is my favorite crossover between the fight against segregation and music and is none other than Sammy Davis jr. As promised, I said, we come back to him. So Sammy Davis jr. Was very active in the movement and along with his fellow musicians, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. He also joined up with get this lineup, Harry Belafonte, Mahalia Jackson, and Tony Bennett at Carnegie hall. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Uh, Well, apparently in this case, you do a tribute to Martin Luther King. Sweet. Yeah, and that's what they did. This was in 1961. It was advertised as a tribute to the greatest civil rights leader to emerge in the South since the Civil War. They raised over $50,000 and donated to the tribute to King. Davis also performed in several freedom rallies, which took place in Los Angeles and Montgomery, Alabama. Now, here is my favorite part of the whole thing. In 1961... Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a letter to Sammy Davis Jr., personally thanking him for the support of civil rights and the changing role of black artists. And it said, and I quote, Not very long ago, it was customary for Negro artists to hold themselves aloof from the struggle for equality. Today, greats like Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Mahalia Jackson, and yourself, of course— are not content to merely identify with the struggle. They actively participate in it as artists and as citizens, adding the weight of their enormous prestige and thus helping to move the struggle forward. Well, dang. And that was Dr. Martin Luther King written to Sammy Davis Jr. Do you keep that? Like, is that framed somewhere? Please tell me that's framed somewhere. It's with Sammy's estate. So my favorite is what Sammy Davis Jr. says in response to this letter. And this is great. I would give him my good eye. That's what I think of of Dr. King. He's one of the great men of our time. They should retire the Nobel Peace Prize with his name on it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Mic drop. That's the end of that. Flash forward to March of that year, 1961. This was the incident with Ray Charles. Now, I didn't see the film Ray. I'm told Jamie Foxx was excellent. I'm told the film is quite good. What I did hear was that this incident was kind of downplayed so uh, Charles was booked to perform at the Bell Auditorium and they announced prior to the show that the attendees would be white only on the floor and the balcony would be for black attendees just like they did for the Flamingos so what did Ray Charles do he canceled his appearance (laughs) he said I'm not doing it and he rejected this casual racism and the venue said, well, we're going to fine you. So Charles paid the fine and didn't play another show in Augusta, Georgia until they lifted segregation. That's awesome. Like sticking to your guns. I love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Then we come up to 1963, an artist that I've actually loved for some time and really changed my perception of jazz music. And that is none other than saxophonist John Coltrane. Hmm. It was the first jazz album I ever bought. Really? Was Blue Train, yep. But uh, Coltrane had been around for four years, and he's one of the authorities in jazz for sure. Unfortunately, this particular incident was not inspired by anything good, for lack of a better term. Birmingham, Alabama, September 15th, 1963. The KKK plants a box of dynamite under the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Do you remember this one? This is the Four Little Girls story, isn't it? Yep. Okay. They were all killed. Their names were Addie Mae, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair, the oldest of which was fourteen. There is a, a terrific documentary on HBO
1: called Four Little Girls and it will shake you. And I do
2: recommend I recommend it highly. It's a great documentary. So in response to this incident, John Coltrane put together Alabama, was the name of the jazz album. Oh, the song, I'm sorry. The song was called Alabama. It was November 18th, 1963. It was a tribute to those young girls. And the solo was repurposed for King's eulogy that he delivered at the girl's funeral. So he was brought in to do a eulogy. And the music composed by Coltrane was actually used to sort of underscore that. Uh, Coltrane performed live on jazz on TV's "Jazz Is Casual" in front of the entire nation, so he got to perform that song on a national level. Awesome! This one's for you, December 21st, 1963. Sam Cooke. Yep. Releases change what song? Is, a change is going to come. You got it. Change is going to come. It was inspired by Bob Dylan's "Blown in the Wind," and he encountered racial turbulence in just a few years before the song came out. He and his tour mates were trying to book in a, quote, whites-only hotel, and they were placed under arrest. So this is cited as being one of the key answers behind the song. A change is going to come.
1: Just It it just makes me so angry that, because of the color of your skin, you are a second-class citizen. That is baloney. I already used my 1F bomb. One, okay, but one, one I mean, per show. But, jeez, w- help me understand how this is even a thing. How you can look at your fellow man and say, because you're different than me, you're less
2: than me, that is absolute horseshit. Well, just the very next year, uh, Nina Simone actually points out this hypocrisy. Um, She did a Carnegie Hall performance of Mississippi Goddamn. That's the name of the song. Yeah, we've actually, we we covered that song when we did Mm -hmm. her episode. Yep, and it was a just biting response to the murder of Medgar Evers in June of 1963, and it was just a comment in general on racism in not only the South, but all of America. Uh, Here are some of the lyrics, just so you can let this settle. I think every day is gonna be my last. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies, and you're all gonna die, and die like flies. The song was actually banned in several states, mostly in the South, uh, but it didn't stop Nina Simone. She would later go on to tell Jet Magazine that Mississippi, Goddamn did damaged her career and that the industry had put a boycott on her records as a result. So she kept going, but thoroughly believed that by releasing that material, she was going to be subject to discrimination.
1: Well, that was the thing was a lot of these these people that would put out their music, Sam Cooke said that he was literally afraid of a change is going to come. He yeah. said it scared him. Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, she would perform that and she she was scared to perform it. Even yeah. though it meant so much to her and to others. And we, we spoke about this where, where that would have to be the literal showstopper. Mm-hmm. like That would be the end of her show. So, yeah.
2: And this is at a time when the civil rights movement is really in motion. I mean, this is the mid-60s. So, at this point, again, for people to be afraid is just, it's horrifying to think that, you know. It's just terrible. Uh, 1968, April 2nd, we all know Harry Belafonte, correct? Mm -hmm. Who actually made an appearance in Black Landsman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He made history outside the studio by taking his own money and investing them into the civil rights movement. Belafonte actually bankrolled several organizations, including the Freedom Rides, and most famously, he bailed Martin Luther King out of prison with his own money, (laughs) which is amazing. Um However, the most controversial moment in his career came in 1968, where he did a television special and performed a duet with Petula Clark. Do you remember this one?
1: Okay. If I remember the story correctly, it was the Petula Clark show, correct? Correct. It was the Petula Clark okay. show. So she had brought him on, and they were going to do a duet. And at the end of it, something overtook her, and she kissed him. The information I have is that she grabbed hold of his arm. Okay. So, So, But it was a sign of affection. Correct,
2: yes. And they threatened her. Yeah, and the network threatened to pull the episode because they thought that would be, quote, offensive to America.
1: I hate people so much.
2: But Clark later came out, and it was her show, and she said, no, you're going to leave it. So she refused to alter it in any way. And, in fact, it was one of the highest rated episodes of her show. So I think that shows you what was going on. So can I can I fancy interject? Absolutely.
1: So, this is when.
2: That took place on April 2nd, 1968.
1: Okay, so I think April, May, June, July, August, September, October. So seven months later, just seven months later, the same year, you're going to see the first interracial kiss on television, thanks to Star Trek.
2: Yeah, for that's
1: right. for uh, Nichelle and William had their first kiss and yeah. So, I mean, it's crazy to think that the network was going to pull that. And then, cause there were only three networks at this time. <laughs> so yeah, there wasn't much going on. Yeah.
2: You, you had your, you had your pick and of three, but unfortunately that incident would be preceded by more tragedy, which of course happened on April 4th, 1968 where Martin Luther King was shot and killed. Unfortunately, there were riots in Dorchester, Roxbury and the South end of Boston James Brown was scheduled to perform the next day, and the city actually went ahead with the broadcast because they thought it would be a way to keep people home and get them off of the streets. Um, Needless to say, it didn't quite have the effect they desired because during the concert, attendees ran on stage, uh, the police were swarmed, and actually James Brown asked them to stop and address the people and said, and I'm quoting James Brown here, now I asked the police to step back because I think we can get some respect from my own people the crowd obliged the concert went on and things went on their way and that's that's what we're finding like that's what we saw with the George
1: Floyd protests if you just let people speak their their truth and speak their minds and they're doing it in a peaceful way you will it will end peacefully if you gas them and throw, uh, the, the the pellets at them, the rubber bullets, if you, if you attack them, they're going to attack back. If you let them have a peaceful protest and allow it to remain peaceful,
2: it will end peacefully. I think the quote was, A riot is the language of the unheard, and I believe it was Martin Luther King, but I don't know for sure. James Brown went on, after his concert, he stayed in Boston... And would go around actually personally asking people not to riot. So he went through the streets of Boston and said, "Please don't." There's another way. That's that's my home state. It's a home state pride right there. Classy. June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine. The struggle for justice in the civil rights movement was not only limited to African Americans, but also another uh, group of people coming up in the United States. Um, There were several songs going around that were sort of anthems of this. Uh, We Shall Overcome was one of them, and I'll Overcome Someday was introduced to a wider group of civil rights activists, both white and black, and it actually continued throughout the 1960s into the 70s, and that same song, We Shall Overcome, became a theme for the Stonewall Riots, which happened in New York nine years later. Um, so that we shall overcome anthem, which actually came out in 1969, was brought back for those riots for gay and lesbian rights in New York nine years later. That's the tie-in.
1: I, mean, I, t- I told you this before. Like everything loops back onto itself. That mm-hmm. that the the more we do these episodes, the more I'm figuring out. Like people knew people, things have influenced other things. It loops back on itself, and I think that we're going through that right now. We're going through a time of civil unrest. I mean, for goodness sakes, we've had riots, we have a coin shortage, we have a pandemic, <laughs> we've got you know, uh, the bars are shut down. Like, it's it's crazy. The world that we're in right now is very reminiscent of the world that we were in in the 20s, in the, the 50s, in the 60s. We're this is it, it's all looping back on itself. We're, we're dealing with the same things that we were dealing with
2: in the 60s, right? You're right.
1: Is it going to get better?
2: (laughs) Well, we'll see here. Uh, 1969, September, Jimi Hendrix releases It's Too Bad. Uh, I say released as a funny term because he performed it live, and it was never released. It took a few performances to actually get a recording of it that was later then kept for sort of posterity. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, most people forget, actually served in the United States military. Uh, Hendrix enlisted in the Army in 1961. And he was assigned to the 101st Airborne. Hey, I know those guys. Yep. However, while he was stationed at Fort Campbell in Kentucky, he was injured and given honorable discharge. That was around 1962. The song, It's Too Bad, is told from the perspective of a Vietnam soldier returning from war. And it was his way of addressing Vietnam, but it was also a thinly veiled metaphor for the plight of the Black Panther Party in Chicago and New York. Um... The Jimi Hendrix experience had just broken up at this point in 1969. So Jimmy was really moving away from that sound, which made him famous, and really becoming more sort of activist in his style of music. So this was a song that really hit on two fronts it hit the issue of Vietnam, and then it also hit the civil rights movement at that point.
1: Yeah, and we uh, covered part of a little bit of information on the Black Panther Party with the Tupac Shakur episode. Mm hmm. Not
2: not a lot, but we did touch on it. In September of 1970, Curtis Mayfield left the Impressions. He went solo. And he started again, like Hendrix, injecting more socio-political themes to his music. And it was a grand statement of records like, We People Who Are Darker Than Blue and Miss Black America, which were along these lines. Again, He was getting clear of the pop music that brought him to popularity, and again, mostly kept with the impressions, and this was very much more active for him, at least from a political and sociological standpoint. 1971, Marvin Gaye. Mm. Do I really need to say more, or? No, I'm I think you should say more because it's a podcast, and <laughs> no, if you just look at
1: me blankly, it's kind of weird.
2: Yeah, and if I just do that for every topic, it's going to be weird. But
1: so. Marvin Gaye, what's
2: going on? That's the song, yeah. He released it in 1971, and it was a combination of R&B. And it was very sort of Motown-focused. It was very soulful, and it was really a commentary on what was happening at that time. I'm to play that right
1: now because I feel like it's such an important song.
3: For all in love can conquer oh, You, you know, know we've got to find a uh, way to bring, to bring some love and get here today day. Oh, oh, oh. Picket lines Sister. and picket signs. Sister. Don't punish me Sister. with brutality Sister. Talk to so you can see Oh what's going- More than other, everybody thinks we're a man. Oh, but who are they to judge us? Simply cause our hands won't. Oh. oh, you know that we can find a way. Drink some Don't punish me with brutality. Come on, talk to me. You can't see what's going.
1: The lyrics, picket lines and picket signs don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so
2: you can see what's going on like that should resonate even now. It summarizes the yeah, like you said, the pain the country's going through now. And in 1971, when this song first came out, it was a time of war It was a time of divide. And those were acts of police brutality. So Marvin Gaye just asked the question, you know, what's going on? That sums it all up. It's it's poetic and beautiful. And sad at the same time. Yeah. In 1972, August specifically, it was the seventh anniversary of the Watts riots. So the California communities actually put together their own Watts tax, which was a show that was meant to sort of be a Woodstock-esque performance. Tickets only cost $1. And in between the performances, they had everyone from Jesse Jackson to Richard Pryor come out on the stage and just talk about what it's like to be black in America. Wow. Yeah, some of the musical performed, you know, really echoed of racial pride. They had Kim Weston's opening theme with the Black National Anthem, "Lift Every Voice and Sing." Uh, the Staple Singers did res- the Staple Singers did respect yourself, and was actually all on a documentary. Uh, it was put together as a documentary, which did go on to win a Golden Globe. Awesome. I think it's called Watts. Watts Tax, I believe is the name. Uh, That was in 1972. In 1974, we focus on, I think, one of the most prominent athlete activists of all time, and that is none other than Cassius Clay, also known as Muhammad Ali, which, of course, he took up the name Ali when he joined the Islamic faith in the 1970s, and he continued to fight for civil rights. And nothing, I think, surpassed his contribution more than uh, the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle fight which was against George Foreman in 1974. It was promoted along a three-day music festival, which included, this is absolutely amazing, James Brown, B.B. King, The Spinners, and other artists. That is a lineup right there. So attendees flocked from all over the globe to attend the event. It was meant to symbolize the new era of African Americans and Native Africans and also address the issues that were going on in Zaire at that time. So the subject of this next date of note, which is February 1977, is Fila Kuti. He was a Black Panther advocate, and he actually joined the Black Panther Party in a trip to the United States from his native country of Nigeria. This was in 1977. Um, he was a musician and activist, and his band was called Africa Seventy which had a song, an album called Zombie. And the target of the Zombie album and all the songs contained on it were actually going after the Nigerian army who were backing up the corrupt regime in Africa and making it, quote, a prison of people. So this was a time, I believe, when the Nigerian genocide was underway, if I'm not mistaken. Um, needless to say, this brought a lot of heat on Fela Kuti, and the powers in Nigeria actually sent soldiers to attack his compound. Yeah, he had a compound, and they sent soldiers to attack it. Uh, during the raid, uh, Fela was beaten, his compound was destroyed, and his mother was thrown out of a window. She eventually succumbed to her injuries, and Fela responded by delivering her coffin to the military barracks in Nigeria, as a statement. Uh, he would later write the song, Coffin for Head of State, which is directly reflecting of his own experience. Um, and this is an example of someone who really went out on a limb and paid the price hmm. for his actions. It's really tragic. It's incredibly tragic. Uh, but in light of all of this, a few years later, Kuti was running his own political campaign in 1980, and his platform line was, music is the weapon of the future. That's awesome. Yeah. Which segues perfectly into our next musical activist. I don't think there's anyone more notable for musical musical activism than Bob Marley. True. Bob Marley, 1978. After Jamaica had declared independence from Great Britain, there was a long and bloody civil war between the People's National Party and the Jamaican Labor Party. Uh, Both sides would often hire gunmen to police the streets. So they were basically walking around as armed, you know, guerrillas. And they would just open fire on protests. Voters, they would just go after people. And it was a very scary time. And Jamaica was actually gaining an unprecedented global influence because of reggae music. And that's really where Bob Marley took the helm. In 1978, both parties, again, this is the Jamaican Labor Party and the People's National Party, decided to use the music for a large concert benefit. And they brought in Bob Marley as the headliner. So during his set, you're going to love this, Bob Marley called for opposing politicians Michael Manley and Edward Sega to join him on stage and shake hands in a gesture of unity. awesome. It was meant to be a message for the people to say that they could resolve this and that the violence would come to an end. But beyond that, it served as a symbol of just how reggae music could not only affect the course of Jamaican history, but unite people all over the globe. And I think it's a very powerful statement. And I believe even Bob Marley himself was shot. And he continued on, didn't he? I know he didn't die from the gunshot.
1: Uh, we didn't cover that in our conspiracies. Uh, apparently, the CIA put a needle into his shoe, so that's, I don't know about that part. That's how he was given cancer. Uh, don't don't you oh. don't you know anything about history,
2: man? <laughs> but uh, allegedly, Bob Marley. There was an assassination attempt. He recovered from it, of course. And his whole mantra during that was that well, the people trying to you know, tear us apart, aren't going to stop working. So I clearly can't stop working. So he got back on tour and continued to play music until the end of his life. Yeah. Did you know that in 1981, Stevie Wonder rewrote Happy Birthday? I feel like I do. He he did. (laughs) He actually wrote a version of Happy Birthday. I feel like I've (laughs) heard this version before. 1981, and it was... Happy Birthday. The reason he wrote it was because he was campaigning to make... Martin Luther King's birthday and national holiday. Okay. So he wrote this in 1981 to raise awareness. Uh, The full track finds him expressing disbelief that anyone would oppose celebrating Martin Luther King Day, which, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Stevie. I get it. Uh, He held a massive rally in Washington. Oh,
1: there are people that that think we shouldn't do that. Well, I'm not one of them. (laughs) And neither am I. And I think
2: those people are wrong. Yeah, I think they're idiots. So he held a massive rally in Washington and along with him were Gil Scott Heron, Diana Ross, Jesse Jackson, and a number of other prominent African-American musicians, speakers, and individuals that went actually all throughout sort of on this tour with Stevie Wonder, which is pretty cool. And sure enough, 1983, President Ronald Reagan established Martin Luther King Day. Awesome. Yeah. Which is amazing.
1: It's so weird, uh, and this is going to go off the tracks real quick, but, like, it's so strange. Um, I have, you know, my political leanings, but I actually really liked Reagan. I know he's a Republican, but I really liked him.
2: I don't think I was really old enough to understand everything Reagan was doing. I mean, I know at that time, like, I've heard, like, the stories, but it's something I want to look into more. Uh, he
1: kind of created trickle down economics, which were called Reaganomics. Mm-hmm. And his um,
2: Mr. Gorbachev, chair down this wall. I remember that. Yeah,
1: but he, I, I think, he won my affections when he gave his address. He gave his State of the Union address the day that the Challenger exploded. The to touch the face of God. Shook the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Oh God! And that's that's where I kind of, I was like, all right, he's he's a good dude.
2: Well, I don't think we can be surprised that Reagan was a good good at presentation he was an actor you know (laughs) um well well i I think what i'm saying is inherent with that i think came a aptitude of public speaking and sort of persona which i think reagan became known for anyway this isn't about ronald reagan the point is that martin luther king day became a holiday during his administration and stevie wonder is largely credited for that which i think is pretty cool
1: that's awesome though like again affecting
2: change Mm -hmm. i love that also affecting change was none other than MTV, and this is also 1983, because uh, MTV was the first to really shake up that color barrier. Remember that interview with David Bowie?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. which is just so biting. It's just, and the look on his, uh, you know what, I will try to find a way to put that interview on our Facebook page. We can drop in that, that awesome. Yeah, please remember, please remind me. Uh, I will give out all our socials at the end, but there is an interview with David Bowie where... He basically attacks the interviewer in a, the most British way possible. And it is awesome.
2: Yeah. And he calls him out on MTV, not playing videos by black artists. I think that's the crux of it, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, needless to say, I think MTV listened to David Bowie. Um, MTV was, you know, at initially reluctant to play material by black artists. Um, but in the station's early years programmers were really leaning towards rock, hip hop, R&B so there the the change was coming quickly. It had to happen soon. But the one person that really blew the doors off the place was none other than Michael Jackson. Obviously. And, and he <laughs> like got to a, the man was a juggernaut. Yeah, he was. And it got to the point where MTV just had to because Michael Jackson's music was so in demand, particularly Billie Jean at this point was just racing all over the charts. uh, And he really changed the way music videos are made. You know, Thriller set a new standard for what a music video could be. I hate John Landis. Yeah, terrible person, unfortunately, good director. Um, It's it's actually interesting
1: because I, it's odd that MTV would be opposed to Having African-American artists featured, considering that the first rap video that was shown on MTV, and I'm using, you can't see it because this is not a visual medium, I'm doing vicious rabbit ears. Hmm. The first rap song was actually Blondie's Rapture. Was it really? Yes, and that was the first rap that they, they played on MTV.
2: Huh. Well, needless, I think Morgan Freeman had one of the best quotes, and he said, the only color that matters in Hollywood is green, Yeah, which is just biting, and you can just tell me you can't hear Morgan Freeman saying it. Just try. I hear Morgan Freeman
1: in my head most of the day anyway, <laughs> so this isn't much of a
2: difference. So I think this is one of those examples where MTV was basically facing extinction if they didn't get with it. Um, so these did play Michael Jackson's videos. They started Yo M T V Raps, if everyone remembers that show during I believe the it was a mid to late eighties, I think. And I think so. Of course you had, you know, Michael Jackson videos, which changed the standard forever. Everything from thriller on up to, you know, black or white was not just a video, it was a musical statement. And it was a, a theatricality and it was another John Landis video. A, yes, again, unfortunately good director. Um But that was 1983 where MTV really launched out of that, you know, stagnant place and got with it with Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Mm. So there you go. Nice. The 1980s continued and empowered a new generation of black youth to really take on the civil rights movement. So now you had the 1960s where you had, you know, Dr. King and I guess in those earlier parts, Sammy Davis Jr., And in the 70s, you had Muhammad Ali, so now the torch is being passed yet again, and we come up to filmmaker Spike Lee. Uh, Spike Lee obviously had a very different take on civil rights, and for his film Do the Right Thing, he brought in the video for Public Enemies" Fight the Power. Yeah, and we talked about that last week.
1: Last week? Was Mm -hmm. last week protest songs? Yes, it was. Okay, yeah, we talked about that last week, and yeah, yeah, it was a
2: statement. It was, because Spike Lee directed both the movie Do the Right Thing and the video for Fight the Power. Um, and in the video, Chuck D actually denounces the marches and speeches of the 60s and calls for a more radical action from young black America. He says, ain't going out like that 63 nonsense. So you have a real change in how civil rights is being perceived and more importantly how people are are looking to implement that change. You know, Spike Lee has never been a subtle director. That's not his calling card. He makes these films that are poignant and hit home because that's the message he's trying to convey.
1: Yeah, and then people that that, that attack him and say, oh, he is an angry black man. He has every right to be pissed off. He has
2: every reason to be angry. His movies are biographical. That's it. <laughs> so with that the eighties really marked the change in sort of the civil rights concept and as i said these things are still going on even today i'm just going to run down a few other well-known civil rights songs throughout the years that will take us all the way into the modern era and also highlight some classics you've got common and john legend performing glory have you heard that one no that's that's a good one uh freedom which was various artists from the 90s that had tlc tlc swv queen latifah en vogue yes um Aaliyah, Vanessa Williams. Oh wow! And the interesting thing was this was mostly not only black artists, but black women. Yeah, so that was a real powerhouse piece, Uh, and I believe it was 1995. Some of the most
1: incredible vocal, Queen Latifah. Like people forget because she's become more of an actress. She's taken the kind of the Will. She's kind of taken that Will Smith route of you know being a notable actress, but God, she can wail. The song UNITY, Unity,
2: so good. And I think a lot of people overlook the vocals of not only Vanessa Williams, who's a phenomenal singer.
1: Oh yeah, I actually saw her as the witch in Into the Woods on Broadway. Oh, she was incredible. one of like, my first first Broadway shows I ever got to see. And she was I, I sat there with literal stars in my eyes. She was the she was one of the few
2: people that could match Bernadette Peters vocally for that role. And I think it's unfortunate that she was sort of paired up at the. She was inhabiting the same space as Whitney Houston. I think that's why. Um, I think that's why she may not always get that recognition because, well, it's Whitney Houston. And
1: Whitney yeah. Whitney is yet another person that we need to do an episode on. Don't worry, we are getting there.
2: <laughs> I think but, that should be mine because she's a Jersey girl. Oh, you can. She's, she's one of my own. You 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 yeah. you, you would like Whitney Houston? Absolutely. All right. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I'm taking
1: James Brown. Fair enough. All right. It's our home states.
2: Yep. Uh, and then En Vogue. Remember how great En Vogue was?
1: En Vogue's Free Your Mind oh my God. is such an incredible, hard-hitting song. If you don't know that song, don't worry. That'll actually be the end song of this episode because
2: dang. <laughs> and I'll Never Get Over You Getting Over Me. I mean, these are such good songs, but... Yeah. I would I would love to get in a time machine and go back to that one because I don't know what I was doing in 95, but it clearly wasn't watching that concert. And that was a huge mistake on my part. <laughs> Your mom. Uh, yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, then we have, of course, Harder Than You Think by Public Enemy. Public Enemy, obviously known for Fight the Power, but they were you know, a big advocate of civil rights and pushing this movement forward in the late 80s and early 90s. Black Rage by Lauren Hill. Remember that one? Yep. That was dedicated to uh, the artist in Mississippi, Ferguson. Yeah. In Ferguson, Mississippi. Yeah, I was fighting for racial equality there. Then there's Don't Shoot by the Game. This one just is crushing.
1: That was
2: Michael um, Brown. Michael Brown.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And in fact, all the purchases on iTunes went to the Michael Brown charity. That's incredible. Yeah. For That's... those of you who don't remember, Michael Brown was shot by Officer Darren Wilson, and all the charges were dropped on Wilson so he basically got away scot-free for shooting a young black boy and uh that really uh, I would say I don't want to say the good thing that came out of it but as a result the Black Lives Matter movement really came to the front of the line at that point so uh, it's unfortunate we lost Michael Brown uh, and the Black Lives movement came out of that and I think you know, the important takeaway there is that people are being active and they are taking a proactive stance.
1: And they're, and and we're pulling these things like I can't breathe, don't shoot. These have become the mantra of these marches. And I think it's so important for us to say their names, for us to remember who they were and not to let their deaths be in vain. And, And, you know, I want Breonna Taylor's, I want her her killers to go to jail. And I think that that's what we need to be putting our energy toward because we saw what happened with George Floyd. Now all four of them had to go in front of a judge. Right. Can we put our energies in front of that? Like, let's please organize and get those guys behind bars.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, so something like this doesn't happen again. I'm shaking. I'm so mad.
2: And the other songs I'll just use to close out today's episode, we have We Gotta Pray by Alicia Keys. Wonderful song. Uh, Pride by U2, I think, encompasses a lot of different aspects of, you know, people who stood for something and as a result lost their life. And then finally, the classic by James Brown, Say It Loud, I'm I'm Black black and I'm I'm Proud. proud. Yeah, the anthem from the boy from South Carolina, right? And we,
1: we also talked about that within our protest songs as well, so...
2: So I think the the message here is that these things are still very much going on at this point. You know, to quote Marvin Gaye, "What's going on?" I think a lot of us can look at today and feel that exact same way. And if we look at these last hundred, you know, oh, geez, what is almost now one hundred and seventy? I mean, from eighteen sixty, that's it's it's been one hundred and sixty f- literally years, forever. Yeah. It's been thousands of
1: years. Yeah. thousands of years. There's been there has been separation, segregation looking down upon other races, this needs to change. There is there is a real problem because in the end, you guys have to know that hate is not hereditary. It is taught. You are taught to hate. And I think that it's time for the next generation to be taught nothing but love and acceptance. So one day that there, there won't be a color barrier there won't be segregation. You won't have to fight for equality. We will just be equal. And I know that is just pipe dreaming, but man, isn't it a good dream?
2: And I have to applaud all of those activists and artists who do step forward. Everyone from, you know, the Sam Cooks, the Sammy Davis Juniors, all the way up to, you know, Alicia Keys, Lauren Hill, John Legend, Public Enemy, you know, they're all making a statement and that is not an easy thing to do. And I just want to say that I'm in awe of those who continually contribute to the cause. Again, this has been going for way too long. The idea that it is new is completely false. Mm-hmm. As I reviewed through the course of this episode, this started back within you know the laws of American history. And I think it took musical artists, brave musical artists at that, to help tear down those constructs.
1: So that is going to end our, not only the episode today, but it'll also end our series on a little bit of history. There will not be a show next week. Uh, We are actually going to go on vacation Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, study up for our next series of four episodes, which is going to be artists that we've sadly lost to COVID, Mm -hmm. which has kicked off, I think, a lot of unrest and a lot of yeah basically I'm just gonna leave it at that there's a lot of unrest and sadly we've lost uh, some beautiful stars to COVID and we would like to highlight them and if you guys think that we are doing a good job and you would like to give us money (laughs) you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod our website is something I'm still not saying you can (laughs) email me at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And you can check out our other awesome Pantheon podcasts at com. Thank you so much for checking this episode out. Check us out in two weeks' time, uh, where we will bring you a new series of spotlights on wonderful people in the music Pantheon. Keep on rocking in the free world. Will.
2: Yes. Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs)
4: Prejudice. Wrote a song about it. Like to hear it? Here and go.